The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Maybe you're familiar with the Enneagram or Myers-Briggs, the Myers-Briggs Personality Assessment. These models, these tests, they have a way of revealing to us something that's always been there, right? We take these tests and we see where we fall and we say, oh my gosh, that's so me. Oh my gosh, that's so you. These tests, these models, they help us identify a reality that we've always known, but we haven't been able to put a name to. Well, I think the philosopher, the Roman Catholic philosopher, Charles Taylor, in his book, uh, Our Secular Age, helpfully gives words to realities that you and I experience in our culture every day. Realities we experience, but realities that we can't always put words to. After reading his book, it leads you to look at our culture, to look at our lives and say, oh my gosh, that's so us. And one of the things that he says in his book is that in our time, it's not so much that people are anti-religion. I think we see that from time to time, no doubt. But rather, it's just that religion has come to be seen as a private affair, reserved for some. A religion like Christianity is seen as just one product on the market to purchase, among many others that can make your life meaningful. I think we can all agree that in our modern society, the church is not the center of the town square, and I don't see that changing anytime soon. Christianity is not the default belief in our country. It's just one option among many. On Sunday, some go to church, some do yoga, some rest in scientific investigation, others various philosophies, some hold to a vague spirituality, some read self-help books. For some... They've been disillusioned by the church, and so they've stopped attending. Others, they just don't know. And Taylor says, in our age, in our cultural moment, with so many viable options on the market, our faith is fraught. Confession is haunted by an inescapable sense of contestability. Our confession is haunted by an inescapable sense of contestability. He says, we don't believe, we believe while doubting. In our culture, we're all Thomas now. Now, I don't know how this lands with you, but for me, I feel this. I feel the weight 
How can the Philippians consider the needs of others more significant than themselves? How can we consider the needs of others more significant than ourselves when often we know that we consider the needs of ourselves way more than others? It seems to be our default. And I proposed that Paul shows us the how by placing this beautiful hymn. Of, about Christ next in his letter I believe that it is by beholding the beauty of God in the face of Jesus Christ that by the Holy Spirit you and I will be transformed into his image into a people of Christ-like humility and selflessness Because the sobering reality is that you and I, we become what we behold. And we come to deeply love what we behold, what we set before us on a daily basis. And so, if that's true, then Paul wants the church at Philippi, he wants you and I to set Christ before us day in and day out. Day in and day out. So that we may be transformed. And so last week we began, we had an exercise, if you will, in this beholding of Jesus. And specifically we beheld the humility, the selflessness of Christ in verses 6 through 8 in the first part of the hymn. So this week, if you'll allow me, now that you really have a say in the matter, but pastors say that sometimes. If you'll allow me, uh, I want us to behold what we see in the second part of the hymn, and that is the supremacy of Christ. The supremacy of Christ. The power of Christ. Because if we are to live lives of humility, lives of selflessness, lives of sacrifice, and even humiliation, then we must be a people who practice beholding, yes, the humility of God, but also the power of God. The power of God. So, let's actually start our scripture reading back at verse 5. So if you have a Bible in front of you, it's Philippians 2. Verse 5. And then we'll get into our verses for today. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Okay, our verse for today. Verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. In verse 9, Paul wants us to see the supremacy of Christ by looking at what I'm calling his already exaltation. His already 
exaltation. Uh, Hermeneutics 101 says that whenever you come across a therefore in a passage, you have to ask what the therefore is. That's right. We're going to have fun this morning. Don't worry. Yes, it points us back to, to what's happened. And as we just read, when we look back, we see Jesus at the lowest position imaginable. Death on a cross. If you remember, you and I don't get to choose whether or not we're going to be obedient or disobedient to death. We don't get to choose that. That's the fate that awaits all of us. But Jesus did. And out of faithfulness to the Father and out of love for the world, He chose obedience to death. In His death on the cross, we see the ultimate self-sacrifice. The ultimate self-denial. The ultimate obedience to the Father. We see the work of the Son, but now, when we get to verse 9, it shifts from the work of the Son to the work of the Father. And here we see the Father freely respond to the faithfulness of the Son by one, highly exalting Him, and two, bestowing the name above every name. So let's talk about these two things. Let's look at these two things. One, we see God highly exalting Him. Sometimes as a pastor, I get the chance to talk to people who are considering the Christian faith. And naturally, when they sit down with myself or Jonathan, they have a ton of questions and concern. Very difficult questions. And naturally so. I think that's right. Uh, But I think it's good to remember as we get into these conversations and have a flurry of questions that are thrown at us that we, that they, excuse me, are not the only ones that get to ask tough questions. And so to begin, I want to ask them a question. And I want to ask them, what do you think about Jesus? I know you have a lot of questions. I know you have a lot of concerns. I know you have a lot of problems with the church or Christians in your life that have treated you horribly or have done horrible things. But let's set those aside for a second and talk about Jesus. What do you think about him? Specifically, what do you think about the death and resurrection of Jesus? What do you think about the death and resurrection of of Jesus. Is C.S. Lewis said, Jesus can't just be a good moral teacher. He's either a liar, to which he would be immoral. He's either a lunatic, he's crazy because he thinks he's God and he's telling everyone he's God and then he's telling them to lay down their lives for him, or he's Lord. I want them to wrestle with that because at the end of the day, with all the doubts that you and I have, with all the questions that you and I have, the heart of our faith is that the body of Jesus Christ is not in the tomb. 
The body of Jesus Christ is not in the tomb. If He was not resurrected, if He did not appear to the women at the tomb, if He did not ascend to the right hand of the Father, then what I said last week isn't true, and we're wasting our time here this morning listening to me. There are a lot better things you could be doing on your Sunday morning. Everything depends on the truth that Christ is risen and that the God-man, Jesus Christ, now sits at the right hand of the Father. That's what we profess this morning. That's where we say Jesus is. He's, He's here by His Spirit, yes, but He's reigning at the right hand of the Father. Paul says in this passage that God highly exalted Him. Or he super exalted him. The emphasis here is that Christ has been raised to the highest position imaginable. Paul wants us to see here that Christ has gone from the lowest position imaginable to the highest position imaginable at the right hand of the Father. It's interesting. Paul here doesn't talk about the process of Christ's exaltation, he doesn't talk about his resurrection. He doesn't talk about his ascension. He doesn't even talk about him being at the right hand of the Father uh, explicitly. He goes straight to being highly exalted. I think that's because Paul wants us to see this close connection of look how low, look how small Jesus looked on the cross. Look at his death. Look at his crucifixion. And then God raised him to sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord. And that's where our hope is. We're going to talk more about that this morning. But secondly, Paul uh, reveals more about the exaltation of Christ. He wants us to think about it more. And he says that uh, the Father has given him the name above every name. The Father has given him or bestowed upon him, handed over The name that's above every name. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, I have to say that although it got mixed reviews, I am a big fan of the 2001 movie A Knight's Tale. It's a medieval comedy adventure film that is filled with all these amazing anachronisms. Some of you may remember, um, it's a Lance, hello. Some of you have no clue what I'm talking about. I butchered it, I did, but it's, it's great. Um, all these great anachronisms, the crowd, the jousting crowd as they're watching, they're chanting, we will rock you. I mean, it's just amazing. Um, I have a point to this. The main character in the movie is uh, William, played by the late uh, Heath Ledger. And William is a young squire with a gift for jousting. And after his master dies, William steals his identity as a knight and goes on jousting and being very successful. Well, at the end of the movie, William is found out to be a fraud. He's arrested and he's placed in the pillory, you know, the the stocks. And... Just as the mob is about to explode and uh, collapse on him, a prince named Edward reveals himself out of the crowd. 
he acknowledges William's honor and announces that, in fact, William is descended from an ancient noble family. And then the prince knights him, Sir William. Here, in this film, you have this public unveiling, this public declaration by the prince, by someone in authority, who reveals to everyone who William's always been. It was veiled to us. But by the prince's announcement, the true identity of William is known and will be known to all. Uh, In our passage, it's interesting. Paul doesn't explicitly say what the name above every name given to Jesus is. And so, naturally, there's been some debate. What is the name given to Jesus? Is it Jesus? Is it Son of God? Is it God? Is it Lord? Well, pretty much all interpreters are in agreement that's the name Lord. The Greek word kyrios. For in verse 11, we see the title for the first time in the passage. It's added to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is Lord. So what's the significance of God handing over the name Lord to Jesus? Well, it's hard for us to relate to this today, but for um, any... A Jew at this time, anyone that would be familiar with the Old Testament, this would be a scandal. It would be scandalous. They would be familiar with Isaiah 42 that says, I am the Lord, Kyrios. That is my name. That is mine and no one else's. The, the term Lord, Kyrios, in the Greek, uh, is the Greek's Bible's the Greek Bible's way of writing out the special name of Yahweh, Lord, Kyrios. And so in Isaiah 42, Isaiah 45, it's clear that Yahweh, Kyrios, will share his name and his glory with no one. And here we are in Philippians 2. And what's happening? It's not that Jesus is becoming God for the first time, but rather it's like a knight's tale. It's a public unveiling and vindication by the Father of who Jesus has always been. It's a public unveiling of the identity of Jesus. The God that does not share his name with anyone has shared it with Jesus. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God. When Jesus took on flesh in his incarnation, it wasn't evident the nature of his true identity. We know this. To use the words of Isaiah, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. So, Two men could be walking down the street and say, and one could say, hey, look, there's Jesus of Nazareth. And the other say, oh, cool. Where are we getting lunch? His appearance, his true identity was not evident. 
to all. I mean, think about it. Even his disciples who were with him, who saw the miraculous works, who had given their lives to them, constantly have no clue what's going on. Nothing has changed in the church, right? No, they can't grasp the depth of his true identity. But hear this this morning, church. Through the exaltation of Christ by the Father, Jesus is publicly unveiled to the world. Through his already exaltation, the process has begun by which the true identity of Jesus will be acknowledged by all creation. That's not a maybe. Because of the already exaltation by the Father of the Son, one day every knee will bow, one day every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The public unveiling has begun. You and I and many others around the world worshiping, professing that Jesus is Lord is evidence that this has happened. Yet, we know that there are many that just see Jesus as another historical figure. There are many that do not profess that He is Lord. For many, He is just one human option among others. And that's why this morning we need to see the supremacy of Christ, not yet exaltation, in verses 10 through 11. His not yet exaltation. Let's read about that. Let's start back in verse 9. So verse 10 can have some context. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. You and I live in the moment between Christ's past exaltation or his already exaltation and his future exaltation, his not yet exaltation. You and I live in a time that many theologians call the already not yet already not yet. I think this theological language, I think this concept is so important for us to grasp this morning. The already not yet. Why? Well, because like the Enneagram or Myers-Briggs, this language of already not yet helps us to understand a reality that you and I see throughout Scripture, but might have trouble putting words to. Right? It gives us language to see what's, what's already there. Well, what is this already not yet? 
Well, Paul, like many uh, first century Jews, believed that human history could be divided into two ages. The present age and the age to come. The, the present age is characterized by rebellion to God, by evil, by the suffering and oppression of God's people, and the age to come is where God would fulfill His promises to His people. He would judge evil and humankind, and He would bring full justice and peace forever on earth. That was the age to come. Um, And Paul's gospel proclaims something that would have been radical once again to the Jews in his day. It claimed that in Jesus Christ, the age to come has broken into the present evil age. That Jesus of Nazareth has come as the fulfillment of all God's promises to his people. Bringing the reign, bringing the kingdom, bringing the rule of God with him. We believe today the promises of God have been fulfilled in Jesus. That is to say that the promises God made to his people in the Old Testament are already being fulfilled through Jesus. That's why we say things like, he's conquered death. He has defeated Satan. He has overcome the world. That's why we experience his presence now. It's why we experience the blessings of salvation now. The Gospel of John says you and I have eternal life now. God has broken into the present in Jesus Christ. The rule of God is breaking into the present. Through the rule of God, God is moving in his creation. Jesus has, to use another word, he's inaugurated the kingdom. And yet, at the same time, we have to understand that while God's promises are being fulfilled in and through Jesus, they are not yet consummated. There's more to come. We live in an overlap of the ages where many will see Jesus just as another historical figure. We live in an overlap of the ages where there is injustice, where there is suffering, where evil does seem to win, to have the last word. But Paul says something very important in our passage. Paul says that there's coming a day when that will not be the case. There's coming a day when the present age will be no more. When the evil of the present age will be no more. Two weeks ago, a woman named Denise who lives in West Homewood, asked if she could come host a prayer vigil at Shades for Anaya Blanchard, the 19-year-old girl from Homewood who is still missing, unless there's been an update since we started. 
she asked, can I host this prayer vigil? And, and we said, of course. And members of the community came, and there was this beautiful time of prayer from people from all over the community, um, interceding for Anaya's family, interceding for Anaya. And that evening, there were two local news stations here. And before the service, one of the reporters came up to me and said, we'd like to ask a pastor a few questions. I said, okay. And then I realized, oh, I'm the pastor. (laughs) My interview, it didn't make it to the local news that night. (laughs) Maybe a sign of God's grace. But with both cameras pointed at me and with the mic in my face, the reporter asked this question. Pastor, why is it important to have faith at a time like this? After a brief panic attack, the only thing that could come into my mind was this. I said, I am a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I very quickly want to talk about the object of my faith, which is him. And so, first of all, I believe that Jesus is powerful enough to bring Anaya home safe. I believe that. But if not, tragically, if not, I have hope. Because of the death and resurrection and exaltation of Jesus Christ, death does not get the last word. Evil does not get the last word. Suffering does not get the last word. Jesus gets the last word because Paul says in this passage that every person, every knee, every tongue, every spiritual force in this world will confess and say, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. He has the last words, and his last words are, Behold, I make all things new. Revelation speaks of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And when it does, he's not coming as a baby. The imagery is one where he has fire in his eyes. He has a sword coming out of his mouth. And he has an army of heaven behind him. It's an image, that image might make some of us uncomfortable, but it's meant to bring hope. It's an image that he's victorious. It's an image that he has conquered all of his people's enemies. It's an image that there is a future where there is no kidnapping. There is a future where there are no tears. There is a future where there is no suffering. 
because Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And when we reflect on this passage, the hope that we have is that the sovereign Lord with fire in his eyes and his sword coming out of his mouth and the army of heaven behind him is the same Lord that died on the cross for you, for me. He rules in power, yes, but also humility and selflessness and love. And so forever we will join the host of heaven in saying, worthy is the Lamb to receive all power, all wealth, all wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. What a beautiful name it is. What a, what a beautiful name it is. What a powerful name it is. The name of Jesus Christ, our King. The name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. As we, this small community, with all of our trials and everything that's happening in life, sing that, profess that, it is a foretaste of eternity where every tribe and every tongue and every nation declare what is true. But it's not yet, is it, church? It's not yet. Just this past week, I was reading about our Christian brothers and sisters in Nigeria. An organization called Voice of the Martyrs uh, estimates that since 2011, 10,000 Christian women in Nigeria have been widowed. 10,000. Many, while holding their children, have watched their husbands been killed. Many have been driven from their homes. Many have lost everything because they profess that Jesus Christ is Lord. One woman who was interviewed said that she's not disheartened because Jesus told his disciples they would suffer. And her prayer is that she would suffer well. That is a faith that can only come by the power of the Holy Spirit. I would love the chance to sit and learn from these Nigerian widows about discipleship, about the cost of discipleship, and about the worthiness of Jesus Christ. Because she's right. Jesus said to his disciples, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. He said, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. He said, in this world you will have tribulation. Paul writes in Romans 8, we are fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. The Christ hymn that we've been walking through for the past two weeks is definitely speaking about the unique work of the Son of God. 
Nonetheless, it reveals to you and me the path of all who claim allegiance to Christ. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ, to be a participant in his life and death, to be united to him, to be an adopted son and daughter of our Heavenly Father, is to embark on the path to glory. It's to embark on the path to Christ's future exaltation. Yet, this path to glory takes us under the shadow of the cross, through the waters of baptism, and into many trials and hardships. The path to glory is a path paved with suffering. But church, our hope is just like the beauty and the horror of the cross is seen in light of the exaltation of the Son, so the beauty and horror of our suffering will be seen in the light of the glory of God. There is nothing beautiful about the cross, just like there is nothing beautiful about the electric chair, unless Jesus is raised from the dead. It is only in His exaltation, it is only in His glory that the beauty of the cross can be seen, that the power of the cross can be seen. And it's the same for our suffering. In future glory, we will see rightly everything. What we see in part now, we will see in full. We will see that none of our suffering was outside of the control of God. We will see that none of our suffering threatened the good of God. We will see that none of our suffering meant that he didn't care, that he didn't love you, or that he wasn't in control. No, our past sufferings will only be able to shine a light on the goodness and the glory of God. So now, in the not yet, we need to behold a Jesus that is powerful. Is your Jesus powerful? Is your Jesus powerful? If we are to be a people who, like our sisters in Nigeria, live selfless lives of sacrifice for the glory of Jesus, if we are to see that Jesus is not small, then we must be a people who hold his humiliation before us, yes, but also a people who hold his exaltation. His already exaltation and his not yet exaltation so that the Holy Spirit may transform us to be a people who bear witness to his glory in word and deed. Lord, bring this about by your power and set before us your Son in all his beauty and power. Amen. Amen.